Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Governor Andrew Cuomo continues to blame what he says is an ongoing political attack for the controversy over the number of nursing home deaths in New York during the COVID-19 pandemic that led to a critical report by the state's attorney general. More from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. The report by Attorney General Tish James, a Cuomo ally, found that New York undercounted by 50 percent the amount of nursing home residents who died in the first surge of the pandemic last spring. Cuomo defended his administration, saying they did not intentionally do anything wrong, including when they carried out a March 25th directive. It required the homes to accept residents with COVID discharged from the hospitals. Critics say that led to a spread of the virus in the facilities and possibly more deaths. I believe everybody did the best they could. I believe the federal government, CDC, I believe they gave the best guidance they could. I believe they give the best guidance they can today. I believe the State Department of Health, they gave their best guidance and made the best decisions on the facts they had. Cuomo says the controversy began during the administration of former President Donald Trump, and he blamed, among others, former Trump aide and Western New York political operative Michael Caputo for what he says were politically motivated attacks. Cuomo says all of the nursing home deaths were a tragedy, and he says he understands that angry and grieving relatives are simply looking for someone to blame. That was mean, because if you lost someone in a nursing home, then it put a thought in your head, well, maybe it didn't have to be. Maybe my father died unnecessarily. And that was just cruel to do. That was just cruel because it wasn't true. Caputo, in a statement, says Cuomo's foolish executive order was the primary cause of thousands of nursing home COVID deaths in New York, and he says the governor must be held accountable. Several hours after the AG released her report, Health Commissioner Dr. Howard Zucker released an updated number of the deaths of nursing home residents. It showed over 12,700 or 43 percent more died than the state had been reporting. Zucker for months had stonewalled requests by lawmakers and the media to share the data, but he says he changed his mind after he saw the report. When I saw the uh, attorney general report, decided that we need to finish that up quickly uh, and get these numbers out in real time. Zucker says he'd been saving the reveal of the numbers for an upcoming budget hearing in February. And he says it's factually inaccurate for the attorney general to say there was an undercount of deaths. He says the deaths were counted. They were just listed with all of the others who passed away in hospitals. This is a very important point to emphasize is that the total number of deaths does not change. That number uh, has not changed. Zucker and Cuomo also cast blame on the nursing homes themselves, saying it was up to the homes to give the health department the correct numbers. The governor says the attorney general's report finds that the data from the nursing homes was sketchy, and he says the health department continues to audit those numbers. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt.
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Alan, the governor, Andrew Cuomo, has been going through a tough time now after the Democratic State Attorney General released a report critical of the nursing home deaths in New York during the pandemic. The governor even drifted into a little bit more trouble on Friday last week when he put in air quotes health experts and said he didn't trust health experts. A New York Times article detailed a number of experts in the state health department resigning and leaving because they didn't feel the governor was following their advice and the plans that they already had placed with the county health departments and was going his own way. Now a judge ordered state health officials to release detailed data on nursing home COVID deaths this week on Wednesday after conservative watchdog groups sued the Cuomo administration for stonewalling. The order mandating the state turn over the requested info within f- information within five business days and pay the Empire Center's legal fees comes less than a week after that scathing report, which said that basically it undercounted by 50 percent. Your thoughts as he deals with this? Well, first of all, I think this is a matter of a combination of character, his character. Don't push me around. You know, I'm Andrew, tough guy. And also the idea that he thought he was doing right. Look, you listen to your experts because the first big issue is whether or not those patients should have been sent back into the nursing home. And he was listening to his experts. He said so. And I think he was. The second issue, of course, is this business of don't tell me what I don't want to know. And getting on the people in the health department is hardly the way to make progress. You know, he is what I've always called Andrew Tough Guy. You don't push me around. And as a result of that, sometimes he says things which he shouldn't say, like he didn't trust the experts. Okay, I don't trust the experts either. I'm going to say that out loud (laughs) because I don't think we know a lot about COVID. Nevertheless, he's the leader, and he's the leader who is supposed to be instilling confidence in the people of New York State. Now, as for his political enemies, Letitia James now turns out to have put out this report as the attorney general, which is highly critical of the governor. At some point, Andrew Cuomo is going to do something else. And Ms. James is going to want to um, be the governor. I have no doubt about it. Our attorney generals always want to be governor, and they are. Elliot Spitzer, Andrew Cuomo, you name them, they get their chance to run as the next rung up. But it'll be interesting to see where Andrew is, who was laudatory of her when she was coming in as attorney general, whether he'll be consistent in that approach. Another byproduct of this critical report is that now we're hearing calls. Uh, James Scoofus is one, Liz Kruger another, who you talk to fairly regularly, to remove the governor's expanded powers. Well, Scoofus, the state senator and a Democrat, has clearly made his decision that he will be the anti-Cuomo guy in all of this. Politically, not physically, but politically, I would sleep with my eyes open. Let me tell you that. Uh, this is not a governor who, who likes that stuff. And I think the expanded powers were extraordinary for the governor, but those people voted for it because they didn't want to get up and out of their houses and expose themselves. So they gave the governor the power. Now, as the pandemic lessens, if it does lessen, what we're going to find is that uh, they're going to want those powers back because they are not afraid to come out anymore fallout for North Country Republican Elise Stefanik from a prominent Republican group, the Lincoln Project, which has paid for billboards that are now up calling for her to resign. Well, the Lincoln Project, of course, is the best of the best of the Republican Party. 
my mom used to say, the best of that kind. And the Lincoln Project is the best of that kind. Nevertheless, it isn't the majority. Now, you and I both know that the laudatory polls of Donald Trump are getting to show that there's a real decrease in the approach that the Republican people have for Donald Trump. As those polls go down, you're going to find that there is a commensurate disrespect for the people who supported Trump. You know, when Stefanik was a candidate, and subsequent to that, she was pretty middle of the road. And then all of a sudden, she decided to play her cards and make one giant bet on Trump. That turns out to be a mistake, I believe. And not only that, but David, think about this. There's a coming reapportionment in this state. And whether it's done by the courts or whether it's done by the Democrats, who are now control of the whole thing, I'd be very careful if I was Stefanik about what was happening. You know, one of the things they do is they try to shove all the Republicans into one district. That way they can't control uh, and have a chance in other districts. So if they decide that they're going to do what they've always done, put all the Republicans in one district, Stefanik makes out like a bandit. But if they start to take a few out of here and a few out of there and to move it because we're going to lose at least one and maybe two congresspeople, it may be lights out politically, of course, only politically for Stefanik. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The U.S.-Canada border has been closed to non-essential travelers since late March of 2020. One of the first executive orders signed by President Joe Biden directs the Secretaries of State, Homeland Security, Transportation, and Health and Human Services to work with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to begin discussions with their Mexican and Canadian counterparts and submit a plan that determines what public health measures and operational considerations are necessary to reopen travel across the border. The North Country Chamber is among the groups that have been calling on federal officials to create a plan to reestablish non-essential cross-border travel, And the president, Gary Douglas, spoke with the Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley. What we and others in both countries have been calling for for months is some kind of transparent indication that the two countries are at least talking to each other about this. And what planning do we have to do? Because if you were going to do something with some of these things, it had to be preparations. Um, So we we absolutely welcome that uh, amongst uh, priority actions was this order from the boss to the heads of several of these departments and agencies, thou shalt start planning and talking and thinking about this, and you're going to talk to your Canadian colleagues and start working on a plan. So it's a direct response uh, to what uh, to what we have been calling for. And uh, 
It's going to be a while. We're probably talking maybe by summer. Now, one of the things that certainly can be talked about more and you you would expect will be now uh, than a few months ago is how do we factor in people that are vaccinated? How do we, we have more rapid testing now? What about testing? So what about you have somebody who wants to visit a family member in the other country? Uh, they have a recent test that shows they're not infected. Oh, by the way, they have their verification they're vaccinated. Can we start treating them differently? Uh, and again, nothing's going to happen quickly, but those uh, as well as just other factors. And if, if you decide between the two countries that in some early stage of relaxation, we're going to start allowing these new kinds of documentation or this new process, a lot of preparation needs to be done. Training needs to be done. Uh, how do you verify people aren't using uh, uh, phony documents? Um, so the important thing is that the discussions are going to start. Gary Douglas, Canadians have been very, very tentative about letting Americans into Canada. Well, first, there's a reality is that the most serious problem is there now, and it didn't come from us because the border has been <laughs> essentially closed since last March. So it's Ontario and Quebec that are in, they're in almost total lockdowns. Um, because of those situations, you know, if I talk to my business allies and, and uh, partners in Quebec, um, they agree and always have agreed with what we're saying, which is that there needs to, there needs to be a planning process. Our Canadian friends are still more understandably distracted by things like, you know, curfew at 8 o'clock at night. You know, you can be arrested if you're out on the street after a certain hour at night and you're not doing it for an essential purpose, which is why, frankly, somebody needed to take the lead. So the president and the U.S. have taken the lead in starting the conversation. Canada isn't going to say no to having the conversation. Uh, So the conversation will now start. Gary, if I recall, there was a task force that was formed a few months ago. Have they even begun to look at these sorts of things? Uh, We were very pleased when that was formed by the Wilson Center in Washington, their Canada Institute, basically said on behalf of the stakeholders in both countries, okay, we'll have an independent, credible conversation. We'll involve the stakeholders. We'll make recommendations to the two governments by the end of March. That's still going to go forward. This could fit very nicely. They could continue to be the avenue for stakeholders to provide input now to these departments and agencies who have been told by the president, start thinking about and talking about these things. I think it could actually work together very nicely. Gary, obviously the trucking and business cross-border travel has been able to continue because that's been considered a priority during the pandemic. But over the last 10, nearly 11 months now, what's been happening to the sustainability of relationships between cross-border businesses and such that, you know, maybe the CEOs can't travel back and forth as as often or at all and such? You are wise beyond your years. Well, you've mentioned (laughs) it before. Um, We're constantly remind uh, folks when anytime we hear particularly anybody in government say, Oh, but the good news is there's absolutely no interference of commerce. It's going on just as it would. And we say, well, actually, we're very appreciative. The truck and rail activity is going on, and we're doing very well in the Champlain region in this corridor. Our manufacturers who have footprints on both sides of the border are almost all in growth mode. So thank you very much for all that. However, the part of the business relationship that is being harmed by the interference of personal travel are the things that you can't quantify that would have happened otherwise but for the interference with travel. And we have a couple of these now. 
I'm a Quebec company. I'm finally ready to do that U.S. production facility. When can I come down for a site visit? Well, you can't. Nobody's going to do a new investment, a new addition, an expansion of an existing company without being able to visit the site. So there is a lot of interruption and a lot of pent-up kind of desire to do additional business that's being pushed to the side. The good news is it's kind of piling up. They're on hold because they can't get to those final visits and face-to-face meetings that they need. The day that those people can cross the border, we're going to see the beginning of a wave of new foreign direct investment in New York State, North Country in particular. We're going to see a very strong year of economic development after that. That's good news kind of hanging out there. Gary Douglas is praising Senate Majority Leader Charles Schumer of New York and the bipartisan Northern Border Caucus for raising the issue with President Biden and urging that the northern border be a priority. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The village of Boston Spa, New York, in Saratoga County recently took politics out of its local elections. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard explains. Boston Spa Mayor Larry Woolbright is a Republican. He says he enrolled in the GOP when he moved to the village in the 1980s when Republicans had a solid hold on local politics. It didn't make any sense to me to register as anything but a Republican, because if you weren't a Republican, you didn't get a a voice. Today, Woolbright is serving his first term as a Republican mayor alongside four Democratic Village trustees. But that's okay for Woolbright, who ran for public office on a pledge to work together to fix village finances. Woolbright was endorsed in his run for mayor by local Republican and Democratic parties. The Democrats later rescinded their endorsement after the move caused a bit of a political stir. He says many of the issues that dominate politics at the national level do not reflect the realities of village government, immigration or abortion rights, for example. Just by virtue of running as Republicans and Democrats, we're carrying some national baggage with us and inviting these culture wars to come into our village elections. Walbright asked local political parties to step back from village elections, and party leaders have agreed to not endorse candidates in the upcoming elections. Anna Stanko is the immediate past chair of the Town of Milton Republican Committee. Small town village politics are more about the people that are running especially in this day and age, and their values, core values, and their interest and service to the community than their political affiliation. Ellie Dillon, chair of the Milton Democratic Committee, feels the same way. We want to do what's best for the village. And our past elections tended to be a little contentious. We're a small town. We know of each other if we don't know each other. Um, and a no-party system would give an opportunity for uh, 
any candidate to run based on merit. Wolbright says a nonpartisan village government is what's right for the community of about 5,000. He'd like to see the idea catch on, though he says he's not trying to influence anyone. But his effort has gained some attention locally. Earlier this month, Saratoga Springs Mayor Meg Kelly, a Democrat who is not running for a third term, said she would like to see the Spa City reject political parties too. Wolbright doesn't know if he'll run again in 2023. I also have not given a whole lot of thought to my party enrollment, although I have to admit that it hasn't been the source of great comfort lately given the national theme. But still, I mean, there are local people who are involved in local politics who are very different from that national theme. I I wish that we could divorce the two things. But we can't. Stanko, who is remaining on the Milton Republican Committee, despite no longer serving as chair, says she thinks before more local governments drop party politics, there needs to be more understanding between sides that have become polarized. There's a lot of fences that need to be mended. There's a lot of, um, and by that I don't mean between certain people. I just mean, you know, things have got to be maybe a little fairer across the board between how people are treated and their viewpoints are treated. Ballston Spa Village elections are March 16th. Voters will elect two village trustees and one village justice without party nominations. In Albany, where ironclad Democrat rule dates back a century, outgoing common councilor Richard Conti has introduced a bill to establish nonpartisan municipal elections. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. The Northeast garnered mixed reviews in this year's American Lung Association annual State of Tobacco Control Report. The Legislative Gazette's Jesse King with details. The 19th edition of the report grades all 50 states on their tobacco control efforts, from smoke-free workplace laws to tobacco taxes and prevention programs. Director of National Policy Thomas Carr says while smoking is on the decline, it remains the leading preventable cause of death in the U.S., killing 480,000 people a year. COVID-19 is certainly taking a lot of attention in terms of public health right now, and for good reason, of course. But um, it's important to keep in mind that tobacco use and secondhand smoke are still leading public health threats. And then also uh, smoking is linked to COVID-19 as well. States need to keep their eye on the ball um, to make sure that all public health threats are still tackled. So is New York keeping its eye on the ball? Well, sort of. As in years past, New York got an A for its laws mandating smoke-free work sites, schools, restaurants, etc. For those trying to quit, the state's Medicaid program improved coverage of cessation treatments, including all seven medications approved by the FDA. Furthermore, in 2020, New York ended tobacco sales in pharmacies, restricted coupon use for tobacco products, and outright banned the sale of flavored e-cigarettes in the state. More on that later. But the Lung Association says New York still fails in one category, its funding for tobacco control programs. Michael Sealback is the Lung Association's National Assistant Vice President for State Public Policy. So New York spends under $40 million a year on its state tobacco control program. The CDC says New York should be spending over $200 million a year. And the fact is, New York takes in over $2 billion in tobacco taxes and master settlement agreement dollars from the tobacco companies. To be fair, Sealback says most states, except Alaska, Maine, and Utah, are missing the mark. Massachusetts and Vermont allocate less than $8 million combined, and Connecticut doesn't provide any state funding at all. 
Still, Sealback would like to see New York raise its tax on tobacco products, which for a pack of cigarettes has remained $4.35 since 2010. Invest some of that money to help smokers quit and to prevent kids from ever starting. We know that increasing the price of cigarettes is the most important thing you could do to prevent kids from starting to smoke and reduce consumption. Like New York, the rest of the Northeast fared well for its clean air laws, with the exception of Pennsylvania and New Hampshire, which both received a D for allowing certain businesses to permit smoking. Massachusetts received one of the best overall report cards in the country, the only state to ace the Lung Association's new category on flavored tobacco restrictions. According to the CDC's Youth Tobacco Survey, 24% of high schoolers and 7% of middle schoolers used tobacco in 2020. That's a decline from previous years, but electronic cigarettes are still largely their first choice. New York, New Jersey, and Rhode Island all prohibit flavored e-cigarettes, but Massachusetts took it a step further in 2019 when it banned all flavored tobacco products, including menthol cigarettes. Connecticut lawmakers plan to discuss a similar move this year, and Sealback hopes other states will follow suit. Kids chase the flavors. When Juul stopped selling mint-flavored Juul pods, all of a sudden menthol became their number one product. The secondary problem when you look at a product like menthol cigarettes Menthol cigarettes have been marketed overwhelmingly in communities of color. Data has shown that the menthol actually makes it harder for smokers to quit. And there is some data that that suggests the way that those cigarettes are inhaled actually leads to worse health outcomes as well. Nationwide, six states failed across the board, and the federal government saw plenty of room for improvement itself. Despite raising the smoking age from 18 to 21 last year, Washington, D.C. received an overall D for its tobacco regulation, as well as its coverage of cessation treatments. In the report, the Lung Association notes the Democratic House passed a ban on the sale of all-flavored tobacco products in 2020, but the Senate, then controlled by Republicans, never picked it up for a vote. Where the U.S. does excel is in its mass media awareness and anti-smoking campaigns. Carr says the Increased focus on health care driven by COVID-19 puts the Biden administration in a good place to act on tobacco as well. I'd say all the uh, policies in state tobacco control combined really are the, are the key. You can find a link to the report where you can check out your state's grades at WAMC.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Jesse King. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2106. Or just listen or podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.